Well, thank you very much, Paul and, and Mark, for the invitation. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And yes, I'm glad you've made the point about transition that I'm not going to use transition here, at least from my belief about Neanderthals, in meaning an evolutionary transition from one form of human to another. I'm talking about a, a period of, of rapid change. I'm using it in, in that sense. So here we have uh, uh, the Kennis brothers' uh, excellent reconstruction of the uh, Neanderthal from the Neander Valley. And here is a supposed example of Homo sapiens for, for comparison. So the transition then, a period of change. So what changed at this Neanderthal modern human transition? Well, of course, the Neanderthals come with an awful lot of baggage and the cartoonists love them and, uh, well, West Ham United were mentioned there, but often if football fans behave badly, they're called Neanderthal. Um, so here we've got a, a very nice cartoon which has uh, the brains of Java man, eat, eat, run and hit. Neanderthal man, hunt, make tools and build. So really quite a constructive view of modern humans, charisma, image and sarcasm. So, uh, <laughs> so yes, the Neanderthals feature in many cartoons and of course, uh, you know, views of them have changed greatly over the years and, and are changing all the time. So here we've got a reconstruction from the early 1900s of uh, French Neanderthal. And this was done um, at a time when there was no evidence of really primitive human-like forms from Africa. So the Neanderthals were pushed into the position of a missing link by some people. So the Neanderthal here is reconstructed as hairy, bestial, bent-kneed, head hung forward, um, long arms, grasping big toes. So a, a very primitive, an ape-like kind of Neanderthal. And here at the other extreme, Carlton Kuhn's view. Now Kuhn was an American anthropologist and in the 1950s he said that Neanderthals were our ancestors and if you took a Neanderthal and, and washed and shaved and dressed him up in modern clothes, you could put him on the New York subway and no one would bat an eyelid. And I usually say at this point that says more about the New York subway <laughs> than it says about Neanderthals probably. Uh, and the, the, the truth is that, of course, that both of these are wrong. The Neanderthals are not missing links. They're not ape men. They're highly evolved humans. Their brains were as large as ours. They walked upright as well as we can. But on the other hand, they were not really just a, a slightly dirtier and hairier version of us. Uh, I think they were a different species. They had a separate evolutionary history. And they can tell us a lot about how it is to be human, what it is to be human, because we're the only species of human around today they give us an alternative way to be human. So they're very interesting from that point of view. In terms of the evidence, well, we've got plenty of skeletal evidence of Neanderthals. Uh, we've got a transition then in the, in the form of the body, the robust Neanderthal skeleton giving way to a more lightly built skeleton of modern humans. And in detail in the skull, and this was something I did my PhD on, um, the change in skull shape from the Neanderthal skull to the modern human skull. We've got, as I'll mention even now, DNA evidence of change between Neanderthals and modern humans. We can even get DNA from Neanderthal fossils if we're lucky. And there's a whole suite of behavioural changes as well. And this is Will Robrook's summary from a recent issue of Journal of Human Evolution. And he's listed there a number of changes in behaviour that happen at this uh, Neanderthal modern human transition. And the evidence we can bring to bear is, is many and varied and, and the ways of looking at the problem increase all the time. 
So I'm coming to this, of course, from the area of paleontology. I'm in the paleontology department at the Natural History Museum. So we have the fossil evidence itself. We've got behavioral evidence in the form of stone tools and living sites and butchery marks and, and if we're lucky, artifacts <coughs> made of other materials as well. And then, of course, what I've called here contextual and other data, but, but equally important data, really, stratigraphy, dating, isotope studies, um, and, of course, if we're lucky, as I mentioned, the evidence of DNA, which we have from some Neanderthal fossils. So to get a rounded picture of the Neanderthals and us, we need to be using all of these different kinds of evidence. And it's been a great time to be working on this subject because so many new techniques have either really been made to work very well or have entirely new techniques have come online that we never had when I was beginning my work on Neanderthals. So when I did my PhD I spent four months driving around Europe measuring Neanderthal skulls as many as I could using tape measures and metal caliper measuring instruments um, and came back with my handwritten data sheets and put them into a primitive computer at Bristol University in, in 1971. Um, now we've got these wonderful imaging techniques such as computerized tomography where you can capture uh, the whole structure of, of a Neanderthal skull including its internal morphology and someone could probably do that kind of work now in front of a computer console in a, probably a day or two uh, calling up the data virtually and working on the specimens. So there's been these huge advances in the detail in which we can study. We've got microscopic techniques. We can look at cut marks, for example. We can look at growth, incremental growth lines and growth structures in things like teeth and look at how quickly uh, an individual in the past grew up compared with people today. Isotope data can be used to track mobility. It can be used to reconstruct ancient climates. And in this case, it can be used to look at diets. And this has been applied to Neanderthals because, of course, we are what we eat. We take up into our bodies, into our bones and teeth, chemicals from water and our food. And these put a unique signature into our bodies of the kind of food we're eating. So we can use this to reconstruct past diets. I've mentioned DNA. Occasionally, we're able to get out evidence of actual DNA from Neanderthal fossils. And of course, in each of us, we've got a genetic code that tells of our own evolutionary histories. We may be able to date fossils directly. Uh, when I was beginning my work, if you wanted to date a Neanderthal fossil, you probably had to saw it in half and use half the specimen. Now, with techniques, many of which have been pioneered here in Oxford, uh, we can date fossils from tiny fragments of bone or enamel. Uh, and this means that much more of the record can be dated and can be dated much more accurately. And of course, these wonderful techniques can be used to reconstruct the specimens. Here's a Neanderthal child's skull from Gibraltar, which we have in the Natural History Museum collections. And this skull here has been reconstructed by mirror imaging one part to the other side. And we can see here, hidden away, that we've never seen these, but inside the jawbone are the images of the unerupted teeth of that child. And here even is the inner ear bones of that child. We've never seen them physically, but this computerized tomography can image them, we can study those ear bones in great detail and we've learnt from this work only in the last 15 years that even the inner ear bones of Neanderthals are slightly differently shaped from our own and that's something that's laid down in the foetus before birth and so that's something which certainly must be under genetic control. So we, we're able to learn so much more now about the, the fossils. 
So, of course, we and the Neanderthals are really latecomers in the whole evolutionary story. This is a version of it from the Smithsonian website. So, in simple terms, we can divide human evolution since we diverge from chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, six or seven million years ago, the first two phases of that human evolution occurred only in Africa. The first phase we're still learning about between about four to seven million years ago. We have some fossils from that period. We have a, a much better known phase called the Australopithecine phase, the southern ape phase, again in Africa. And then only in the last two million years did humans get out of Africa and start to colonize the rest of the world. And it's only in that stage that we get the appearance eventually of us and of the Neanderthals. So we're very much latecomers in this story of human evolution. So here's a deep sea core record um, which shows us a measure of the climate of the Earth over the last two million years. And in this uh, isotope record, these are periods when the ice caps of the Earth are small, so we're in a warm stage as we are at the present day, and these are times when the ice caps of the Earth are large, so-called ice ages. And you can see there have been regular fluctuations going back into the deep past. That little blip up there is, is our present warm stage, that's the last 12,000 years. So as we go back in time, we can see down here, this is the time when humans got out of Africa for the first time, prim very primitive humans, close to two million years ago. They then spread certainly to the Far East, we find them representing this species Homo erectus in Java and China. And sometime after that they get into Europe and later on we get the evolution of Neanderthals and of us. And we can't separate our origins and our evolutionary history from that of the Neanderthals. The two are intertwined and so when we're looking at the Neanderthal story we also have to look at our own evolutionary origins. And with our own origins there are two origins to explain really. Um, there's the origin of the features that we all share as a species today. So looking around the room, we come in many different sizes and shapes and colours. Uh, but we have shared features. We have a high and rounded skull, we have a chin on the lower jaw, a lightly built skeleton, um, a small brow ridge, varies a bit, but uh, overall these are the shared features that, of modern humans, ones we can look for in the fossil record. Um, but there are also then these differences between human populations, so-called racial, regional features differences in size and shape and colour. And we have to also explain the origin of those differences between modern kinds of humans. And those two kinds of origins could, of course, have occurred at different rates and at entirely different time periods. So how did modern humans evolve and where do the Neanderthals fit into the picture? Well, it depends who you ask, of course, because there are very different views about this. And so down here we've got the multi-regional view. And this argues that when this early species Homo erectus got out of Africa and spread around much of the old world, it started to evolve in each region. And in each region it evolved in a sense towards modern humans. And these lines of evolution in Europe and China and Africa did not split from each other and speciate. They were glued together by gene flow. So genes were spreading from one part of the world to another and thus Homo sapiens is evolving over the whole range, really, of ancient humans through to the present day. So this is the multi-regional model. At the other extreme is the out-of-Africa model, one which, which I follow. And 
The out of Africa model says, yes, indeed, Homo erectus did get out of Africa and it did evolve in each region into new forms of human. But there was only one place where the evolutionary transition went through to modern humans, and that was in Africa. And then in the recent past, certainly within the last 150,000 years or younger, there was a second radiation of humans from Africa, this time of modern humans, not of erectus, and we get the appearance of modern humans from this recent dispersal event. And those other lineages of humans were replaced by the spread of modern humans from Africa. So this model is sometimes known as out of Africa and sometimes known as the replacement model. So these two very different extremes, and of course the Neanderthals sit in this sort of time and place in these schemes. So in the multi-regional model, the Neanderthals are one part of an evolving web and network of genes uh, spreading around the world and developing to modern humans. At the other extreme, the Neanderthals are completely replaced by modern humans coming into their territories and taking over from them completely, and they die out. And then in between, we've got these more intermediate models. So Gunter Breuer has argued that Yes, indeed, there was a recent out-of-Africa spread of modern humans, but when modern humans got to Europe, there might have been just a little bit of interbreeding for a brief time with the Neanderthals. And the assimilation model, developed by people like Fred Smith and Eric Trinkhaus, argues that it's actually a much more gradual and long-term process. Africa is dominating the story because it has larger populations. It's pumping out new behaviours and new genes into the rest of the world, and these other areas are assimilating these new features. So we've got out of Africa, but a more gradual process. So the Neanderthals then are potentially taking up genes coming in from Africa, and modern Europeans would then be partly derived from Neanderthal ancestors. And I have to say that almost everyone now has abandoned what you might call the classic model of multi-regional evolution, basically Homo sapiens evolving for about two million years globally. But these three models each have still strong supporters um, and even though I still favour this one certainly you know as, as I will say we're still not sure about this question of hybridization. So the species I'll talk about then we've got the ancestral species in my view Homo heidelbergensis uh, which is the common ancestor of us and Neanderthals and this earlier species Homo erectus which seems to continue in the Far East for some period of time. And then we've got this weird creature, the Hobbit, from Flores, Homo floresiensis, and I could give a whole talk on that one because it's a fascinating topic, but this is a strange and very puzzling uh, series of fossils from the island of Flores in Indonesia, and we don't still don't know where this creature fits into the human evolutionary story. So we'll look a little bit at the evolution of Neanderthals and what we know about that, and we know that people were in Europe on archaeological evidence even before 1.2 million years ago. Some of the archaeological evidence seems to go back to about one and a half million years. But we have physical evidence from about 1.2 million years from the site of Atapuerca in uh, northern Spain where this jawbone was recovered and published last year in the journal Nature. So we have later finds from the same sites at Atapuerca or similar sites in the same region that date from about 800,000 years. And these have been assigned by the Spanish workers to a new species of human, Homo antecessor, pioneer man, to mark them as the, the first immigrants into Europe. And I think the status of this species is still a little bit unclear, but certainly this does seem to be something 
uh, more evolved than Homo erectus and in some ways distinct from the Heidelbergensis fossils that come later. And there's also a fossil from Ceprano in Italy that may date from eight or nine hundred thousand years ago and it's an adult skull, very strong brow ridges at the front and this might indeed be related to these fossils of Homo antecessor from Spain. And a uh, little gory detail here, uh, these Spanish fossils at 800,000 years have cut marks on them. They look like they've been treated as food, uh, butchered, uh, along with the animal bones at the site. So possibly, as this suggests, some rather uh, gory evidence of cannibalism from 800,000 years ago in Spain. And Britain gets into the story not long after this, and we have human occupation, we think now at least 700,000 years ago in Britain, and we have human fossils turning up about 500,000 years ago. And this is the, the famous site of Boxgrove, and it's uh, a site near Chichester in, in Sussex. And the site was excavated for uh, more than 10 years uh, by Mark Roberts and his team based at University College London. And it's a wonderful site which has uh, good samples of butchered horse and deer and even rhinoceros. So these people 500,000 years ago were, were butchering uh, mammals, in some cases some large mammals and quite dangerous mammals at Boxgrove. They left behind some 400 of these hand axe tools, beautifully made some of them, hand axe tools, and we've even got little moments in time. And here from Boxgrove, preserved for half a million years, a place where someone squatted down and made one of these hand axe stone tools. And uh, they started napping first of all with, a, with a, a hard hammer and the heavy flakes fell close to them. They then switched to a soft hammer, probably a bone or antler, and they started napping off smaller flakes of flint. And when they'd mapped out the shape of the hand axe they wanted, they got up and walked away and left this profile here of where they'd been squatting down at the ground and doing that. And of course we can take those pieces of flint and given several months of three-dimensional jigsaw work, we can reconstruct that core of flint and in the middle of course is a void, we can put silicon rubber in there and get out the shape of the hand axe that they made and took somewhere else. So it's a wonderful site, little moments in time from 500,000 years ago. Especially interesting for me because there are a few human fossils at Boxgrove. We've got this left tibia, shin bone, um, and we've got a couple of incisor teeth from the lower jaw. And here one of those incisors is compared with the jawbone from Germany, which is the type specimen of Homo heidelbergensis. And the, the site at, at Heidelberg is about 500,000 years old. So we think the Boxgrove people were probably members of this species, Homo heidelbergensis. And that tibia is from a very strongly built individual, close to six foot tall, weighing uh, on modern comparisons over 14 stone, and the bone is very strongly reinforced. So this individual had a very demanding lifestyle. Um, so it's a wonderful site and we're still learning about humans from 500,000 years ago from that site. But what happened to Heidelbergensis? Well, the next bit of the story um, is best told back at Atapuerca in Spain. And now this story moves into one of the caves at Atapuerca and a site called the Cima de los Huesos, the Pit of the Bones. And it's very well named uh, as the Pit of the Bones. And I went down there about 15 years ago and it's still very fresh in my memory because it was a, a very exciting, even scary experience. Um, and you have to do some real caving for over an hour. You go up and down on ladders and crawl on your stomach and eventually the worst bit of all is you're dropped on a little metal ladder down a 50-foot sinkhole. 
and here I am looking extremely worried about to go down there and that's because that's the view I've got looking down there's the ladder <laughs> disappearing into the blackness so you go down there and you come into this pokey little chamber and it's stuffy the oxygen gets used up in a few hours and has to be replenished humidity hundred percent and people are working down there excavating fossil remains the floor of the chamber is full of bones at one end of the chamber there are cave bear bones, at the other end of the chamber human fossils. And here are some of them in the ground, there's a, a jawbone there, uh, part of a human skull with a brow ridge and arm and leg bones. And this site has now produced 6,000 human fossils. So it's, it's an incredible sample. So this is an old picture when there were only 1,500 human fossils from the Cima del Huesos. There are now 6,000. There are nearly 30 individuals represented in the sample, uh, men, women and children most of them prime age adults or adolescents. Every part of the skeleton is represented and one can make up composite skeletons of these people. Again, like the Boxgrove people, big and very strongly built. And here's one of the most complete skulls from the Cima del Huesos. It's the, the oldest individual known in the sample in terms of to tooth wear, this is an old individual. And if we only had the jawbone, we'd probably say this is a, an example of Homo heidelbergensis. But when you look at the skull that's with it, the nose is very beaky and pulled out. And as we'll see, that's a feature of Neanderthals. And at the back of the skull is a depression in the middle of the occipital bone called the suprainiac fossa. And this little anatomical detail is interesting because it marks the top of the neck muscle attachments. And this little pit is known in every known Neanderthal fossil, whether it's adult or child, they all have this little pit of bone in the middle of the occipital. And in, it's very rare in modern humans, but it's there in all of the Atapuerca occipital bones. And it's also, interestingly, on the British fossil from Swanscombe, which we think is about 400,000 years old. The back of the Swanscombe skull also has this little pit in the bone, the suprainiac fossa. So what is this telling us? Well, I think it indicates that Heidelbergensis is evolving into the Neanderthals. And the Spanish workers regard these as a late form of Heidelbergensis, showing the beginning of Neanderthal features. I regard these fossils as an early form of Neanderthalensis showing residual Heidelbergensis features. But I think the significance is that there is an evolutionary transition going on to Neanderthals in Europe. Um, genetic data, as we'll see, also supports this kind of timescale for the origin of the Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals then are the inhabitants of Europe. They're evolving in Europe and whenever we get people coming into Britain in the later part of the Middle Pleistocene, we think they're Neanderthals. And we can pick this up from the site of Pont Newith in North Wales, where we've got fragmentary remains of jaws and teeth of what seemed to be early Neanderthals from about 230,000 years ago. So the evolution of Neanderthals is continuing in Europe um, through this time. And uh, we were able to celebrate the the birthday of the first Neanderthal find, the 150th birthday anyway, in, in 2006, because of course the Neanderthals got their name from a skeleton that was found in the Neander Valley in Germany in 1856. And of course this was just before Darwin wrote on the origin of species, so the Neanderthal find inevitably got drawn very quickly into the debate about human evolution. And uh, I of course measured the Neanderthal fossil for, for my trip around Europe in 1971, and I think we all thought there wasn't really anything more to learn about this Neanderthal um, in recent times. But to, at the time, they seemed 
crazy archaeologists in Germany decided to try and find more of the Neanderthal skeleton. What had happened in 1856 is that the Neander Valley was being quarried away for its limestone. And the quarry people were just quarrying the cliffs and they were going through caves and they were throwing all the stuff out of the caves onto the floor of the valley. And luckily a local school teacher picked up some of these bones, thought they might be cave bear bones, and they turned out to be human and they turned out to be the first recognised Neanderthal. Anyway, these two archaeologists, and Ralph Schmitz was one of them, Ralph wrote to me and said, we're going to try and locate where they threw those deposits in 1856 and we're going to look for more material. And he said, I put my chances at maybe 5 or 10% of finding anything. So they got old quarry plans and they looked at all the old engravings of the valley to work out where the cave was. They worked out where the debris would have been thrown down into the floor of the, of the, of the existing valley and they started to sink test pits down. And I think in maybe the third or fourth, they found this tiny fragment of bone which fitted on to the 1856 discovery of the Neanderthal femur. So indeed they had found some of this material that had been thrown out in 1856. So we've now got parts of the face for the first time, we've got teeth, we've got vertebrae, we've got a second Neanderthal from the site, we've got stone tools and fauna. So it was an incredible bit of work, and even better than that of course, the Neander Valley skeleton gave us the first Neanderthal DNA, and the second Neanderthal individual from the site gave us a second sample of Neanderthal DNA. So incredible, even after all this time, this site's still giving us new information about the Neanderthals. So we know a lot about the Neanderthals because they had the helpful habit of burying their dead in caves. And that means that uh, we archaeologists can go there and, and excavate, and if we're lucky, we may find one of these Neanderthal burials. So we have very good samples of the Neanderthals. Um, we can say that their body shape was distinct from that of modern humans, shorter and wider overall, very strongly built, particularly in the upper body. Um, and they had large brains, I mentioned that. Their brains were as large as ours, in some cases even bigger than the modern average. But the skull was long and low with that large brow ridge that we find in earlier human species. Uh, not much of a chin on the lower jaw and this very big nose. And a lot of us have got big noses, of course, uh, high noses and wide noses and projecting noses. The Neanderthals had all three in a unique combination. So I think if we could have seen a Neanderthal coming towards us, the first thing we might have seen was this enormous nose coming towards us. Um, and it was accentuated because the cheekbones were swept back. And uh, this is a replica which Nick Barton's kindly provided of the Neanderthal from La Chapelle. Alsan in France, and we can see here this, this big nose and those cheekbones which are swept back behind that nose. So this projecting midface is one of the most characteristic features of the Neanderthals, and as I mentioned, it's present in some of those Atapuerca fossils from the Cima de la Huesos. It might be there for climatic adaptation, that's been suggested, or it might be there because the Neanderthals just thought big noses were very sexy, we don't know. Um, and their range, well, this is an old diagram which suggests the Neanderthals, and it's, it's, it's accurate to the extent uh, of when it was drawn, that the Neanderthals are present in much of Europe and Western Asia. They're present in Israel, Syria, Iraq. Uh, they're present in Uzbekistan. And we now know from genetic data they seem to be present even further east than that. But there are no Neanderthals in the sense I'm using the term in Africa or the Far East. So a lot of boring anatomy here, we can, we can certainly make a list of Neanderthal characteristics and modern human characteristics and this transition then 
is a change from these characteristics to these. So here are features which the Neanderthals and we share, and they either were in our common ancestor, in my view Homo heidelbergensis, or they've evolved in parallel in the two lineages. The Neanderthals have retained some primitive features, which we've lost. And then there are a series of features which characterise the Neanderthals and which separately characterise us, Homo sapiens. So how do the Neanderthals relate to us? Are they Homo sapiens or are they a distinct species? Well, again, it depends who you ask. But I think Katerina Havati, the Greek anthropologist, has done some of the very best work on this question. And Katerina decided that one way to address this was to look at our closest relatives today. So she measured the skull shape using geometric morphometrics of a range of closely related primate species. So for example, there are two species of chimpanzee, the bonobo, so-called pygmy chimpanzee, and the common chimpanzee. So she measured the shape of those two species and made a comparison. And she measured the shape of many other closely related primate species to see how different they were from each other on average. And what she found, and it's clearly shown in this cluster diagram, was that here's the difference between all modern humans that she looked at, including some fossil ones, and the Neanderthals. The difference in skull shape between us and Neanderthals is far, far greater than the average today of skull shape differences between closely related primate species. For example, the bonobo and the common chimp. So at least in terms of skull shape, the Neanderthals qualify as being distinct enough uh, to be a distinct species. But we have to be careful um, because, of course, the species concept is used in many different ways. And the anthropologist Cliff Jolly um, has done a very nice study of baboon species in Africa. And what he found was there were species which seemed to behave as good species. They looked different and they had different DNA. Um, and morphologically, you could separate them on some features, at least, of, of, their, of their skeleton. But where they overlapped, there was a degree of interbreeding between them. So his warning here, the message is to concentrate on biology, avoid semantic traps, and realise that any species level taxonomy based on fossil material is going to be only an approximate reflection of real world complexities. So I think those are wise words, which we have to bear in mind. But of course we've got Neanderthal DNA, and, and again, things have progressed so fantastically. I mean, here's Svante Parbo in 1997 at the press conference in London where he announced the first DNA recovery from the Neander Valley skeleton in Germany. And it was a great moment, and I think we all thought, oh, you know, this is incredible. You know, this is like landing, uh, landing a probe on Mars or something. It's just a great breakthrough. And now, 10 years on, uh, Svante and his colleagues are soon going to announce the draft of a complete Neanderthal genome. So technology and, and computer power uh, recovery techniques have improved so much that we now can talk about having a complete Neanderthal genome which we can compare with the chimpanzee genome and with our own genome. So it won't just be comparing us and chimps, we'll have a three-way comparison of what makes us different, what makes chimps different and what makes Neanderthals different. So that will enlighten the evolution of all three of these groups. And Svante and his colleagues again have picked up traces of Neanderthal DNA in fragmentary fossils such as this one from Okladnikov cave in Siberia. It looks like Neanderthals, at least in terms of DNA, are ranging at times as far east as that. And of course snippets of that genome are coming out. Uh, for example, uh, it's been noted that the Neanderthals seem to have mutations in the melanocortin gene 
which we know in mammals affects uh, skin colour and hair colour and things like that. So it appears that the Neanderthals, some of them at least, were ginger-haired. And of course the press had a great time with this because they had pictures of loads of celebrities with ginger hair and say, look, they're all Neanderthals. Uh, but they got it wrong, not, you know, not for the first time, um, because of course the Neanderthals have their own unique mutations in their melanocortin gene, which are different from the ones we have. And so in other words, they became lighter skinned and lighter pigmented through their own route. And that's not surprising because of course they were living and evolving in Europe for hundreds of thousands of years before we got here. So it's not surprising that they went down their own route of uh, losing pigmentation to take advantage of the reduced sunlight, which of course you need if you're going to synthesize vitamin D. And in terms of the split of the two lineages, well, it's broadly in line with what I've said about Homo heidelbergensis. The genetic data suggests that the Neanderthal and modern human lineages went their separate way around 400,000 years ago. So that fits with this heidelbergensis concept of being probably the last common ancestor. And we've got um, nice evidence of Neanderthal behaviour from an, a number of sites and one of the most recent is this site in Norfolk of Linford dating to about 60,000 years ago and there we've got uh, 30 or 40 of these beautifully made little hand axes mixed in many cases amongst mammoth remains. So the remains of about 10 mammoth skeletons and these hand axes are mixed up with those mammoth remains. So it looks potentially like the Neanderthals were interacting with mammoths in Norfolk 60,000 years ago. Were they hunting? Well, who knows whether they are hunting. There's certainly no injury marks or impact marks on the, on the mammoth skeletons. And in fact, no even very clear marks of butchery. And so I think it's just as likely this was a cold stage. The Neanderthals were probably coming across Doggerland, which was where the North Sea is now and they were coming into eastern England and they might well in the spring have happened upon a defrosting mammoth carcass, defrosting in a glacial lake and I'm sure they wouldn't have turned their nose up at defrosting mammoth meat, even if there were a lot of flies buzzing around um, as this reconstruction suggests. So Neanderthal behaviour there suggesting certainly they're eating good quantities of meat and we know a lot about Neanderthal diets. Here's uh, an American book of course, Neander Thin, Eat Like a Caveman to Achieve a Lean, Strong, Healthy Body. Um, and it tells you how, what the caveman diet was and that we should all go back to this and uh, well we should remember ultimately it didn't do the Neanderthals much good because they went extinct but you know we'll let that pass and I've mentioned isotope data and here's a French study uh, which is using isotopes of carbon-13 and nitrogen to look at diets and here we've got vegetarian fossil mammals such as reindeer and red deer and here we've got carnivores such as wolf and lion and three Neanderthals. And these three Neanderthals are right up there as top carnivores. So in isotope terms, these Neanderthals are heavily carnivorous. And that's consistent, of course, with much of the material we've got from Neanderthal cave sites. And at times, well, yes, maybe sometimes it even included other Neanderthals. There are Neanderthal remains also, as with the antecessor material from Spain, there are some Neanderthal remains with cut marks on them that look like they've been butchered and treated for food. We don't know, of course, whether this was linked with violence or were, were these individuals that had died naturally. Was this crisis cannibalism when there was nothing else to eat? We really don't know. And Nick Barton and I have worked in Gibraltar and there we recovered remains of Neanderthals exploiting marine resources. So they were very adaptable and in, in the Mediterranean region they're eating uh, shells, shellfish, such as mussel shells, which they have baked in a fire first 
and they're even at times uh, eating things like dolphin and, and seal. So they were wide ranging and adaptable. We've also got plant remains from there. They were eating pine nuts. Um, and so they probably had a varied diet, but certainly at times it included a lot of meat. And people like Steve Churchill have taken this, this highly carnivorous diet and have argued that Neanderthals perhaps had a higher metabolic rate than modern humans. Uh, they're living in cold conditions, they've got less cultural buffering than we have, their clothing was probably less efficient, their dwellings were less sheltered from wind chill, and he suggests that they were actually burning a lot more energy. They required this amount of meat to keep themselves warm as much as anything. Um, so that's certainly an interesting bit of work. And the Neanderthal genome eventually may give us a window into Neanderthal physiology and how similar or different they were in that respect. So back to this sort of central enigma of the Neanderthals, and I think this Larson cartoon makes the point very well. The Neanderthals had brains as big as ours, but what were they doing with those big brains? You know? um, so here's a Neanderthal very skillfully carving a piano, which he then plays with his head. So I think it, this is the problem with Neanderthals. You know, if they had these big brains, they don't maybe seem to be doing too much with it, or maybe they were doing quite a bit with it. Here's a Neanderthal reconstruction of a flower burial. Uh, that's supposed to have taken place at Shanidar in Iraq, where a Neanderthal body had flowers scattered on it, which gives us a very modern and, and uh, quite a touching picture of, of a Neanderthal burial ceremony. Um, and so some of this evidence, well, there's a supposed flute from a site in Slovenia, from a site called Jvev Barbe. Um, this flute's made from cave bear bone, apparent flute, I should say. It's published as a flute, but two other studies of it suggests that these holes were actually made by cave bear canines. So not such a good explanation, and certainly the location of the, of, of the site within this cave complex, uh, this came out of apparently a site which was full of cave bear bones and with virtually no evidence of Neanderthal occupation in that spot. So it may well be that, that the flute is actually uh, a product of cave bear chewing and not of Neanderthals. What about the flower burial from this fantastic cave of Shanidar in Iraq? Well, if you read In Search of the Neanderthals, uh, my book with Clive Gamble from 1993, we were, we were pretty rude and dismissive of the pollen evidence from Shanidar. We argued that it was probably modern contamination uh, and wasn't contemporary with the burial. But later studies of the Shanidar IV burial from sediments collected at the time confirmed that there were clusters of flower pollen around that burial. So that seemed to reinforce the view that this was there because of Neanderthals. But there is another aspect to the story. Even more recent studies have produced a, a rather less romantic reason for why the flower pollen was there. Um, gerbils live in Iraq, and certainly gerbils lived in Iraq at the time of the Shanidar Neanderthals. Selecki recorded rodent burrows in the region of the Shanidar IV burial. And we know from modern studies that these gerbils take down flower heads as nesting materials. And so I'm afraid we have to consider the possibility that those flower heads were down there because of gerbils and not because of Neanderthals. That's not to say this wasn't an intentional burial. I don't dispute that Neanderthals were burying their dead. But the complexity of those burials is, is still up for grabs. But as I will also come on to, we can't dismiss all of this evidence of Neanderthal complexity. For example, this site in France, um, the site of uh, Grotte-Duren at Arcy, this site may have evidence of Neanderthal jewellery. Neanderthals manufacturing necklaces and bracelets of animal teeth. And that seems to us a, a very modern human feature.
So it's time to move on now to this transition itself, having got the Neanderthals evolving in Europe for hundreds of thousands of years, about 45,000 years ago, suddenly we see evidence of new things happening in Europe, new technology and within a short time, new looking people, people who look essentially like us, the so-called Cro-Magnons, the people of the Upper Paleolithic in Europe. And we see the arrival of much more complex behaviour in a short period of time. So much more specialised weaponry and tools, uh, much greater use of bone and antler and ivory, which are quite difficult materials to work, um, extensive use of red pigments, even art, cave art and sculpture, weaving and sewing, what you could call real houses, semi-permanent dwellings for the first time, and burials which are much more complex, symbolic burials, which have huge amounts of grave goods, in this case from Sungir in Russia, uh, these individuals have been buried with artefacts made out of mammoth tusks and beads made out of mammoth ivory that would have taken months of work and yet there they are in that burial. So these people, these including children, were obviously very important. This is a status burial, a huge amount's been invested. We don't find that complexity in Neanderthal burials. So I think that behaviour and those modern people, the Cro-Magnons, ultimately trace their origin back to Africa. And just as there's a rich archaeological record in Europe, Africa also has a rich archaeological record at this time. And for many of these stone tool industries, we don't have a single human fossil telling us who was making them. But where we do have human fossils, they seem to show up an evolutionary transition, if you like, just as Europe is recording a transition from Heidelbergensis to the Neanderthals, in my view, Africa is recording a transition from Homo heidelbergensis to our species, Homo sapiens. And Africa, of course, it's a huge place. We still have a lot to learn about these evolutionary transitions. So here's a Heidelbergensis skull. This is a CT scan of the Broken Hill skull uh, that we have in the, the collections in London. Heidelbergensis, and here's a modern human skull. And so evolving Heidelbergensis into a modern human, we've got to change the skull shape drastically, the skull thickness, the brow ridge, of course, the size of the face, the projection of the face from the cranial vault. If we had the lower jaw, we've got to see the development of a chin. So these are the changes which are going to go on, and I would argue that Africa is recording those changes in the later part of the Middle Pleistocene, in parallel with the changes that are producing the Neanderthals in Europe. And we've got fine fossils such as this one from Herto in Ethiopia, about 160,000 years old, um, now a very dry and arid environment, but 160,000 years ago, lakes and rivers and hippos wallowing and humans butchering those hippos. Here's a hippo jaw with butchery marks on it. And here's the most complete skull from Herto, an extremely large and strongly built individual, but recognisably, in my view and Tim White's view, a modern human in terms of the overall skull shape. Um, and this can be shown by, by various measurements of the skull in comparison with Neanderthals and modern human skulls. So Homo sapiens in Africa more than 160,000 years ago. What about the behavioural changes? Well, certainly 20 or 30 years ago there was a view that suggested these were very dramatic changes. A so-called human revolution happened about 40,000 years ago when modern humans come into Europe. A whole suite of new behaviour suddenly arrives, as if out of nowhere, as if a switch has been turned on. But we now know that much of this behaviour has deeper roots. 
even some of it in Europe amongst Neanderthals, but certainly much of it has deeper roots in Africa in the Middle Stone Age. And so we can trace back some of these modern human features anatomically and behaviourally. So shell beads, we have them from the Middle East, from Morocco and from South Africa. We have the use of red ochre, we have the use of marine resources, although as I've mentioned in Gibraltar, the Neanderthals were certainly doing that, and we have complex technology. So it looks like some of these features go back a long way in Africa. So how did these features originate? Well, we've mentioned the kind of human revolution view, so a switch turns on and suddenly modern humans are there behaviourally and physically. Then what we might pick up from the European record is a sort of gradual evolution. As Neanderthals gradually evolved in Europe apparently, maybe modern humans gradually evolved in Africa with their behaviour. But I think there's interesting evidence that this modern human behaviour in Africa is sort of switching on and off as well. It, it's like a light turning on for a while and then it disappears and then another light turns on. So I think that actually what's happening is that even in Africa you're getting bits and pieces of this modern human behaviour appearing but the whole package is not there until much later. And we might have more of a piecemeal accumulation of modern human morphology and behaviour in Africa over quite a long period of time. And this is in line with the work of people like Steve Shannon. And Steve argues that it's actually population size that is critical here. That if you haven't got large populations, then okay, you're in danger of going extinct and your genes will disappear. But not only are you going to disappear, but your ideas are going to disappear. And so what's happening in Africa, and in fact everywhere, is that a lot of innovations can only survive if there's a big enough population to keep those ideas going. We're used today to having continuity of information. Information is stored electronically or in writing, uh, visually. Um, so we don't lose important information, but it was not like that in the past. And ideas probably were continually being evolved and then perhaps being lost again. So it took a long time for population stability and, co and complexity to build up in Africa and then spread gradually to the rest of the world, including to Europe. So, between about 35 and 45,000 years ago, we think there were two human species in Europe, the Neanderthals and our species, Homo sapiens. So, uh, did they ever meet? And what happened when they met? Well, plenty of different ideas, and the cartoonists again have had a field day with this one. Well, you've seen the brain cartoon already. Uh, here's a cartoon from The Observer. Possible reasons for the extinction of Neanderthal man number 32, uh, limited understanding of language. But there's a serious point there. Richard Klein believes that language evolved very rapidly in Africa, like a switch turning on. The brain was rewired, giving us suddenly complex language, and it was that that was the key to the success of modern humans. And the Neanderthals lacked that complexity and richness of language that we have. And here's one of my favourites, uh, there's some Cro-Magnons saying, what on earth are those crazy Neanderthals up to now? And the Neanderthals are sitting around a stone table saying, it's agreed then, from now on as the most civilised species, we'll make all our important survival decisions by committee. There you are. That was their mistake. But more seriously, I think there are very few people now who think that the Neanderthals evolved directly into modern humans. I say, I used to think there was almost nobody, but, but recently some Italian archaeologists have revived the idea uh, that there was a very rapid change from uh, Neanderthals to, to modern humans. There's the assimilation view that Neanderthals were absorbed into these modern human populations, uh, perhaps peacefully and gradually, 
Um, so in Europe, we might be partly Neanderthal in terms of our genes. But then there's the view, and I'm part of this group, that think essentially Neanderthals have gone. They are extinct physically and genetically. And what happened to them? Well, maybe there was population conflict. Maybe the Neanderthals were um, outbred. Maybe they were pushed into marginal areas. And that's fine if the climate's good and there's plenty of food, but if it takes a downturn, you've got nowhere to go. Maybe uh, the modern humans brought infectious diseases from Africa that the Neanderthals had no immunity to. I mentioned the, uh, the Steve Churchill view that Neanderthals were very demanding in terms of energy and food. If modern humans were more efficient, maybe we were able to uh, compete with the Neanderthals and, and have more people on the landscape for given amounts of food. Maybe climate change is part of the story, and I'll come on to that again um, as well. And John Stewart's view is that actually the Neanderthals were dying out anyway before modern humans came. They were survivors of middle Pleistocene populations, and in many cases, a lot of mammal species went extinct around the same time as the Neanderthals. Things like uh, uh, rhinos, for example, um, and the straight tusk elephant. And maybe the Neanderthals were already fading away uh, before modern humans got into Europe. And this is work uh, I did with colleagues at that other university, that small one uh, uh, you know, over in East Anglia somewhere, uh, the Stage 3 project at Cambridge. And um, this is some work we published uh, about five years ago where it was very simplistic in retrospect, but we modelled the climate of Europe over the last 100,000 years in terms of the fluctuations in climate and the very rapid changes, including very severe drops in temperature. And we took two climate records. We took a Greenland, a Greenland ice core record in blue, and you might say quite rightly, Greenland's an awful long way away from Europe. So for comparison, we took a pollen core from a lake in Italy, and we've extracted from these cores a record of the stability and the degree to which there was cold temperatures through that record. And we can see that in the last interglacial, it was pretty stable and overall very warm. But as we move into the last ice age, about 60,000 years ago, we've got a time of a relative instability and cold temperatures. Then it improves a bit around 40, 50,000 years ago. And then around 30,000 years ago, we get a peak of time when the climate is extremely unstable and overall it's very cold. And of course, that happens to be the time when modern humans came into Europe and were competing with the Neanderthals. So I think in a sense the Neanderthals may have been hit with a double whammy, that if, if it was just climate change they would have coped with it by just dying out over parts of Europe and coming back again when it improved, as they'd done before. If it was a new species coming in but the climates were stable, they might have competed on, on you know, and partitioned the environment and survived and maybe there'd be some Neanderthals in the audience now listening to my talk, which would be a fascinating thing. But I think that combination was critical for the Neanderthals. They had to cope with extremely difficult conditions and a competing human species. And it may be that that, I mean, it would have affected the modern humans too. We just scraped through in Europe, the Neanderthals didn't. They went extinct about there. But as I say, that's very simplistic. That's only looking at one aspect of the story, and there are many more. Um, because the behavioural transition is certainly more complex than I've indicated up to now. It looks like the late Neanderthals were beginning to change their behaviour, uh, perhaps in response to competition from modern humans, perhaps even before modern humans were arriving in Europe. 
And even the modern humans don't arrive with the complete behavioural package of the full upper Paleolithic. They too are changing their behaviour at this time. So we get a much more dynamic picture of this changeover between Neanderthal and modern humans. And here's a very recent paper. Uh, this is William Banks and colleagues, and they have modelled this period of transition. And they've taken the ranges of Neanderthals and modern humans before about 40,000 years ago, in a cold stage around 40,000 years ago, and about 38,000 years ago, based on radiocarbon dating. And what they've seen is that the Neanderthals are indeed pushed into smaller and smaller areas of Europe. So as they argue, it probably was competitive exclusion. The Neanderthals are being excluded from parts of Europe by a growing and more successful modern human population. And huge amount of data on here. We've got a project going at the moment, Mark Pollard and Nick Barton, other colleagues here in Oxford, colleagues in Southampton and Royal Holloway, um, called RESET. And we're using um, tephras erupted from, from volcanoes to give us another way of checking the timescale of these transitions in Europe. So we've got a volcanic eruption, for example, a massive one around 39,000 years ago in central Italy that spread a cloud of, of very fine volcanic dust over a huge area of Eastern Europe and even into Russia and the Ukraine. And this can be picked up in archaeological sites. So where we find it, we can say, independent of any other considerations or dating, that site, that level is 39,000 years old. And we can recognise this ash chemically. So this gives us an entirely new way of calibrating and comparing our records between different parts of Europe. And so this is the project Reset. So there's a website you can look at if you want to know more about that project. And what about interbreeding? Well, I was asked that even before I gave the talk, someone said, what about interbreeding? Well, the press love that story, of course. Uh, what's it say? Uh, I'm a Neanderthal man. Despite what the scientists say, it explains why men have been behaving badly for the past 100,000 years. And here's a poor old Liam Gallagher of Oasis, supposedly looking very Neanderthal. Um, so yes, I mean, could interbreeding have happened? Well, um, some people think there's evidence in the fossil record. Eric Trinkhaus believes that this child from Portugal, dating to about 26,000 years old, shows a few residual Neanderthal features in the body shape that could have come from more ancient Neanderthal ancestors that have been retained. Um, how different were they? Well, here's an example of two distinct mammal species which can hybridise. This foal has a mother, who's the mare behind there, and the father is a zebra. Now, zebras and horses have been split for more than a million years, but they, if you put them in a zoo, put them under artificial conditions, admittedly, they can hybridise and produce offspring. So if that could happen, then certainly one can imagine that Neanderthals and modern humans could have hybridised. But did they want it to happen? How often did it happen? How often did the populations even meet each other? We don't even know the answer to that fundamental question. The DNA seems to suggest that the Neanderthals are indeed distinct. Uh, their mitochondrial DNA now is very well known, and we have samples of at least 20,000 people in Europe whose mitochondrial DNA has been sequenced. No one so far has anything like that Neanderthal DNA. Uh, maybe though, maybe someone here even. Maybe tomorrow it'll turn up, but it hasn't done yet. So I think the Neanderthals are extinct physically. Um, but of course, as I mentioned, there's evidence of change in some Neanderthal behaviour, which suggests that there was indeed contact and influence between these groups. So to finish off, just with the final bit of the origin of modern humans, 
we have in our own genome then an evolutionary history in our DNA that suggests that we do have a recent African origin. Our mitochondrial DNA suggests that. The Y chromosome DNA of males suggests a recent African origin. Um, and this is something which we can even map. Uh, here's a, a map with a time scale. And this is a very peculiar view. Here's Africa, here's uh, Eurasia, and there's North America and Australia. But we can trace these ancient lineages of mitochondrial DNA through younger radiations and dispersals right through the old world into the new world. And for Y chromosome DNA, we can do the same thing. Dating is not, I think, secure yet. Uh, the calibration points for this DNA uh, are perhaps not always as secure as they should be, but the pattern is certainly very clear of a recent African origin. And so what about that other origin? The Neanderthals are not part of our evolution, but how did we evolve then these different regional racial features? Well, the Cro-Magnons and people like them on, on my analyses and many other analyses don't actually look much like present-day Europeans. There are forensic tests which you can apply to skulls today which will place a skull very well in the region it comes from. If you apply them to a Cro-Magnon skull that's 30,000 years old or a Chinese skull that's 30,000 years old, you don't get the right answer. The European, the Cro-Magnon skull comes out as African and the Chinese skull uh, comes out as Australian. Now that doesn't mean they're related to Africans and Australians. What it means, I think, is that these regional racial features had not yet evolved and been fixed 30,000 years ago. They were still evolving. And I think we can make that point too from this picture here. Here's a woman today who has one African-American parent and one Native American parent. This is what she looks like. And this is what she looks like with a bit of makeup and wigs and contact lenses looking Oriental or European or African. So if a makeup artist can do that kind of thing in a couple of hours, I think that natural selection, sexual selection, drift and founder effect could certainly have produced these differences in as short a time as 50,000 years as modern humans spread into these new environments in small numbers to begin with around the world. So yes, I think we have a recent African origin and the Neanderthals, uh, sadly in a way, are not part of that origin. So as modern humans spread out, there were transitions going on, not just in Europe, the transition from Neanderthal to modern humans, but over here, probably uh, an archaic form of human in China was also undergoing a transition to modern humans, a replacement, I would argue. Homo erectus was probably still in Java. That too was replaced by modern humans. And then we've got this weird creature in, Fl in uh, Flores, the so-called hobbit. That too was replaced perhaps as recently, incredibly, as only 12 or 13,000 years ago. There was this extinct species um, still around on the island of Flores. So I think chance events are an important part of this story of our origins. If we could go back to Africa and Europe, change a few climate parameters, um, and we could restart the story, and we would come up probably with, with quite different um, events coming out of it. Maybe modern humans would not have evolved uh, at all. So, just some summary points, but I'll just move on to the thank you bit, because I want to thank everyone I've stolen the ideas and pictures from, in particular. Um, and just some summary points there of Neanderthals and modern humans. So I'll stop there. Thank you.